We would like to welcome you this morning to Mission Bible Fellowship as Pastor Stuart Guthrie brings a message from God's Word. We hope it challenges, encourages, and strengthens your walk with the Lord. Father God, it is our delight, our honor, our joy to come together and to worship you through the teaching and preaching of your Word. And Father, as I've listened to many sermons on this topic today and You've encouraged me, you've taught me, you've grown me, you've challenged me. I pray today it'll do the same to your children here this morning. I pray if there may be one, two, or many here that have never heard of Jesus Christ and the salvation that only comes through Him, I pray this morning that in your grace and in your mercy that you will draw men unto yourselves. Father, we come humbly but before you knowing that in our ability we can do nothing. But Father, through you all things are possible. This morning, help us to be sensitive to the needs of the people, their struggles, their concerns, and their issues in their very life. Lord, we ask that you, the great physician, heal all of those things in our lives this morning as we look into your word. And as we look at Peter, I thank you for the life that he lived, the model that he set. And I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged by Him and His words that come from You. And I ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we're tracking again through the book of 1 Peter. If you've been uh, here, you know that. If you've not, we just to kind of catch you up to date, we've been studying through the book of 2 Peter. And it's been an interesting book as we know that... Uh, uh, this has been dealing with how to deal with false teachers in our time and in times to come. And it makes it very clear that we will encounter false teachers in our day. And it's very obvious today as if uh, it exists within our culture. Many, many false teachers exist. And it doesn't take long to, to turn on your television or listen to a radio station to hear the false doctrine that comes through those areas. And even in the pulpits of America today, many false teachers will teach. And so Peter's wanting us to be prepared. He wants to encourage us and challenge us to be able to stand in the light of that and be able to, to stand up against those false teachers and so we've been working through an outline, if you remember, and this Scripture, we, I named the title, Understanding the Scripture Through Inspiration, because that's really what it deals with. And so in our outline, we, we looked at the salutation, the introduction to who Peter was and why he was writing the letter. And then, if you remember, the, the next three sermons we looked at was trying to understand um, uh, how to avoid false teachers through understanding our faith. And so we looked at understanding our faith through a person, that person being Jesus Christ. We looked at understanding our faith through a divine power that comes through knowing Jesus Christ as He's given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. And then we looked at understanding our faith through the perseverance of the Christian. How we as Christians are expected and, and God wants us to grow in our faith and to expand and to, to be godly men and women so that we can make an impact for the gospel and be able to stand against false teachers in our time. In this week, or last week, we looked at avoiding false teachers by understanding the Scriptures. 
And so we know that understanding the Scripture comes through repetition. And so last week we looked at how Peter expresses the importance of reiteration, going over the basic doctrines of the faith throughout your time as you study, understanding those basic things are vital to our faith and our ability to defend against false teachers. And then we looked at Peter's expresses importance to, to have expectation. If you remember that expectation was that we would put aside this earthly dwelling and go and stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, with that expectation that we won't be on this earth very long, we need to have a desire to share the gospel and raise up the next generation of Christians for the sake of Christ. And then the last point we looked at last week was Peter's, Peter expresses the importance of determination. Being determined to be a soldier for Jesus Christ. And this week, today we're going to look at understanding the Scriptures through inspiration. And so with that in mind, let us look at our points today. Three things I want you to take with you this morning. Number one is Peter's words give us affirmation. Second point is Peter's words gives us aspiration. And thirdly, Peter's words give us confirmation. If you will, turn with me to the book of 2 Peter this morning. Chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 16 to uh, 21. And if you don't have your Bibles, we put slides up for you. But I do want to encourage you to bring your Bible. I think that as we open the Word of God, uh, God will really encourage us and will really teach us more by holding this in our hands and reading and studying it as we go through these messages. And so my encouragement to you is to bring your Bible. We've been blessed as a nation to be able to hold this Bible we, we, most of us have four or five of them. We can leave one at church and still have three at the house. And we are a blessed nation. So I, I want to encourage you this morning to bring your Bible. Well, let us read 1 Peter chapter 1, 16-21. It reads this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty, for when He received honor and glory from the Father, such an utterance as this was made by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to you to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the darkened place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know first of all that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So Peter begins here with this verse it's seeming like a counterattack, so to speak. He's really trying to show us that he is not some fake, that he has had an experience. And so we see the first point, Peter's word gives us affirmation. And so what is Peter affirming here? What is it that Peter wants to affirm? Well, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. 
There must have been some false teachers in this time, and chapter 3 really tells us that, that there were. They're running around trying to discredit the work that, that Peter is teaching, the message of the gospel that he's sharing, and that Jesus Christ would come back a second time. And even in our day, we have those that are in our country and in our world that try to discredit the message and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ as well as Christianity in whole. A matter of fact, a man by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche, a German philosopher, said this, People to whom their daily lives appears too empty or monotonous easily grow religious. He's mocking Christianity. One French philosopher quoted this, Nothing can be more contrary to religion than reason and common sense. He's mocking Christianity. It's said that one American president, John Adams, quoted this, This would be the best of all possible worlds if there were no religion in it. The point I'm trying to make this morning is that there are people, bright, brilliant men in this country and in countries across the world that are trying to make Christianity out to be a wise tale. A man crutch, so to speak. And while I was searching the web this week, I came across a picture of a car that had been demolished. Come to find out, all of the people in the car had passed away and gone to be with the Lord. And, and they were talking about, well, these were Christian people and they were, they were going to be with the Lord. And one man responded with this reply, you would have a better chance of ending up in Narnia than in heaven. You see, we live in a culture where we as Christians take attack based off of the authority and the Word of God. It's attacked from the very beginning of Genesis 1 in the creation account all the way to Revelation Many people want us to understand their philosophy and all they do is mock Christianity. The question that we need to ask ourselves is what we believe in a fable? Is it a tale? Is it a myth or is it adequate? Is it reliable? Is it truth? Well, Peter wants to affirm that, that this is not some fairy tale, brothers and sisters. This is not something he's making up in his own mind, but something that he personally, along with others, has truly experienced in his very life. He says here in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Peter starts off here with referring, if you think, James and John and Peter. There were three that served with Jesus within the inner circle. That's what he means when he says, for we did not. He's referring to James, Peter, and John. He says, we didn't come up, guys, with this stuff on our own, like so many do in our nation and in our culture and in our country. Many come up with cleverly devised myths that are designed to take you away from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to defray you from the Bible alone, and so they will add to it, or they will take away from it. But the reality is, there are many out there. Take Mormons, for example. Now, 
You may say, well, why are you so hard on Mormons? Well, it's not that I'm hard on Mormons. I think we can care for Mormons. I think we can pray for them. I think they're in, uh, uh, they're, God loves them just like we love them. They've built a cult off of cleverly devised myths. They tell you that God the Father took on flesh. That's heretical. Never will God the Father take on flesh. And they say He took it on flesh with Son, God the Son, and He appeared to Joseph Smith. And then we find out later that, that He appeared to, by, to, to an angel by the name of Moroni and that Moroni showed Him these golden tablets. And now that's where we have the Book of Mormon. And if you talk to a good Mormon that understands his doctrine, he will say, this Bible is a high school education, but the Book of Mormon... This is a college education. You see what they've done. They've de devised a cleverly devised myth to distract you from the Word of God, to take you from what's truth. There are many cults that do this. And the Greek word for cleverly devised tales is a, is a myth. Something made up, articulated by men. They are subjective experiences that people have that are taught, found outside of the scope of the Word of God. And they are put together by men who treat themselves as if they were their own God, their own Creator, and the purpose is to distract us from the truth. 2 Timothy 4, chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. They tell us that there will come a time when people will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. And I want you to know, folks, we've arrived. That day is upon us. Whatever cult it is, whether it's a Mormon, whether it's the evolutionist, whether it's the JWs, the Jehovah's Witness, or the one world religions that say we need to hold hands and sing Kumbaya together, they are false teachers and we need to be aware. It's all manufactured by man and not by God. Peter says, no, listen, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. What we taught we teach is true. Now what's a good question what's a good thing to do right here is to pause and ask the question, what does Peter mean when he says when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? These two words should be translated together. Power and coming. It should be saying the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I asked you the question this morning, was Jesus' first coming powerful? Was it a powerful coming? Was it what the Jews expected for this king to come in on a white horse and destroy them and bring them out of what they were under? No. Jesus Christ became poor that we might become rich. He became weak that we might become strong. He became a slave and a servant that we might have life and have life abundantly. No, Jesus Christ's first coming was humility. It was done in humility. But we know the second coming of Jesus Christ, when He bursts through those clouds, He will come in power. 
But the false teachers of this time and in our days, they doubted the future coming of Jesus Christ. And Peter makes it clear there in, in chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, where he says, Where? Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was before the creation. These are what the people were teaching. They were mocking Christianity just like in our day. Now what's interesting is Peter is fighting against this false teaching with an account of the transfiguration. He says in verse 17, he says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, that's God, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. Now as I studied this, I asked myself, what's this got to do with the transfiguration? And so what's vital about this is it would be helpful to understand in defending against the reliability of God's Word with the transfiguration. So I ask why? We know there are false teachers in this time. Teaching the second coming of Christ will never take place, but all things will remain the same as they always have. The context of this book surely points to it, and I can bet that it's on the forefront of Peter's mind. But how does that fit into the transfiguration? Well, let's shift gears here because I think it's important to look at what took place on that holy mountain. So if you will, we can turn to, to Matthew chapter 16. I don't have slides for this because I want to shoot in and shoot out and get back to the text. But I think it's vital that we look at this. If you turn to Matthew chapter 16, and you turn there and you look at the very last verse, verse 28. Now before we move forward, understand there's no chapter divisions in the Bible, the original. And so here in verse 28, it goes right into chapter 17 as a continual statement. And so he says in verse 28, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into His kingdom. There's some standing there that will see some coming into His kingdom how in the world is that? They're going to see a glimpse, a picture of the second coming majesty of Jesus Christ there on that holy mountain. Look at verses 1 and 2 there in chapter 17. Six days later, Jesus took with Him Peter, James, and John, and His brother, Peter, James, John, His brother, and led them up on the high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them, and His face shone like the sun, and His garments became white as light. What we've seen take place is hard to understand, but what we've seen is a picture, a glimpse of the second glorification of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 3, let's see what it says. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them taking, talking with him. 
I think it's a great picture of the second coming of Jesus Christ as He was there on that holy mountain transformed. And the fact that Peter is pointing back to this event even makes it more clear as as on the forefront of his mind he's defending the second coming of Jesus Christ. Saying it's going to happen. Trust me, we were there. We've we, We had a picture, a glimpse into the eternal glory of Jesus Christ. But don't miss that there was James. There was Peter. And there was John. How many people does it take to have a true witness? Two or more. And here we have three. We have these three on the holy mountain looking at Jesus Christ in a transformed fashion. His face is shining like the sun. His clothes are as white as light. And behold, He sees Moses and Elijah. Moses, that great lawgiver. Elijah, that great prophet. Moses is a great symbolization of those that would taste death in the flesh. Moses died in the flesh. And Elijah, he was the one called up. Remember? He never tasted death in the flesh. He was called up. It's a great picture of those that have gone to be in the grave today and those that will be when the existence and second coming of Jesus Christ takes place and we will be called up. I hope it's soon. Maybe this morning. Let us read verse 3 and 5 there. Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Peter said to Jesus... Now I find that interesting. We all know Peter well. We have went through 1 Peter. We have in 2 Peter. Peter loves to, to talk a lot. And here we have, we have Jesus having a conversation with Elijah and Moses. And what does Peter do? He interrupts them. Hey... Oh, this is good for us to be here, he says. This is good. You, you, want me to, what, you want me to build some tabernacles here? I'll build one for you. I'll build one for Moses. I'll build one for Elijah. And then we see that he says, While they were still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And then all of a sudden, we see that they fell down on their faces. They were terrified. But Jesus came and Jesus touched them. And when they opened their eyes, the only one who beheld their glory was the Son of the living God, Jesus Christ. Let us not focus on Moses or Elijah. Let us focus on Jesus Christ. Listen to Him. And that takes us right back, if you will, turn to 2 Peter, where we come and we see the example in verse 16 and 17 and 18. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made by the majestic glory, God, Deuteronomy calls Him the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance from heaven and when we were with Him on the holy mountain. We heard it. Others didn't, but we did. We heard it and therefore our witness because there was two or more is reliable 
We saw a glimpse into the coming kingdom of God. And we find that Peter's words here give us affirmation that what he speaks is true and encouraging and enlightening. Christ, he says, is coming back. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We saw Christ in His glory. And we heard the very words of God Himself. But Peter not only wants us to understand that His words give us affirmation, but secondly, Peter's words give us aspiration. Peter wants us to have an objective to have a purpose, to have a direction. He wants us to accomplish something through this testimony, this eyewitness account that He gives. And so Peter continues, So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter reminds his readers that the powerful coming of Jesus Christ is not a myth, but it's reliable. It's a certain reality. For it's rooted in my very own eyewitness testimony, that of James and Peter and John, and even spoke of His second coming, Peter did, in chapter 1. Let's look. Where, do you remember where he did that? Look at verse here in chapter 1 of Peter. Verse 13, he says, Therefore, be pre- prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's reminding us there in, in chapter 1, in 1 Peter, that the revelation of Jesus Christ is going to happen. And then we can go to chapter 4 and look. And he says there in chapter 4, but verse 13, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ keep on rejoicing so that also the at the revelation of glory you may rejoice with exaltation and then again in chapter 5 he mentions it there in verse 4 and when you the chief shepherd appears this is not some new teaching that, te- that Peter is bringing. He's bringing up a way of reminder. Didn't we remember that repetition over and over and over? He wants us to understand. Listen, the second coming of Jesus Christ is coming. He's coming back. And if you're not a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, that should shake your socks off. Because when He comes, it'll be too late. And it should encourage us as believers, to fight the good fight, to live the life that Christ has called us to live in glorified life here on earth, that we've given everything we need to live a righteous life before the King of kings and Lord of lords. So we, he says, the same apostles... Though we've seen Christ in His glory, though we've seen a sneak preview into the kingdom that is to come, though we have, we've, we've heard the very voice of God, He says, you got something better. The Word of God. The prophetic Word has been made more. What a testimony. We have the prophetic Word made more Sure. In this Bible, we have more sure reliance because the Word of God is more reliable than experiences. Peter understands, listen, I had a subjective experience. 
But this Word of God is more reliable than some experience that we have in our lives. Yes, you may have experienced, I may have experienced something on that mountaintop, but you have the very Word of God in written form. He's not deluding the idea that, that he didn't experience God in the transfiguration and the enlightenment on the second coming. But he's saying, listen, you're not cheated as Christians today because you missed that. No, you have more because you have the written Word of God to which you do well to pay attention, he says. God has given us this Word so that we might pay attention, so that we can read it, so that we can study it, so that we can memorize it. It is the written words of God Himself. Peter's words should give us the aspiration to pay more attention to the Word of God and its authority in the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Use maybe sometimes want to live off of experiences. And while, yes, you may have had a mountaintop experience, I'm not against experiences, there is nothing more valuable than the Word of God. Because I tell you what, the devil is alive and he is working well in our day to try to give people more experiences as they rely on their personal experience, subjective action instead of objective truth of God's Word. You may have had an experience, and that's great, but you better make sure it matches up to the Word of God. Some people believe if they could just experience something, that they would believe in God. They may say, listen, if I could just believe, if I could just have been there at the Mount of Transfiguration and I personally saw what God had done, I'd believe. You share your faith enough with people, you'll hear that. If God will show me a miracle, I'll believe in Him. If God would do this, I'd believe Him. But let me tell you what, Scripture teaches different. Scripture says if they did not listen to the to the uh, to listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if we rise someone from the dead. That's what happened to rich man and Lazarus, if you remember. Oh, go tell my brothers. They'll believe if you send somebody. No, we can raise somebody from the dead. But if they don't believe the law, the Word of God, this very book... It wouldn't matter if we raised a man from the dead. You still wouldn't believe. We should be aspired to listen to the Word of God, to study it, to learn it, to memorize it. Because it's by the Word of God that we find life. True life. Not subjective experiences. And again, I'm not against them, but if you do have an experience, make sure they measure up with God's Word. I had a guy in my office... He was a Mormon, and we were debating, and we were talking. Shane was there. I believe it was Shane, maybe. Somebody was there, one of the elders. And we talked for, for an hour and a half, almost two hours. 
And this man based his whole religion, his whole understanding of biblical terminology based off experience. As he said, I was walking up the road and I saw this this temple out in this wide open field. It's just a mirage. I saw it. It was an experience. And then when I went to Salt Lake City, there it was. I saw the, the Mormon temple. And that's what he based his whole religion experience off of. That don't match up with the Word of God. Experience has nothing to do with our salvation. Every experience we have may not be an encounter with God, but may be an encounter with the devil. And the only way to know whether it is or not is to have it confirmed through the Word of God. You may dream dreams. You may see visions. You may hear viable voices. And blessed are you if you do. Amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. But you better make sure that it's tested up against the Word of God and that you're not being deceived. Because I tell you, I deal with people on a daily basis that deal with experiences. People have experiences and we need to make sure that they they match up to Scripture. Later in this book, we will learn that false teachers, one of their tactics is encourage people more and more to experience and have experiences. But we need to make sure that they are subject to the Word of God, that they sit under the Word of God, not over the Word of God. Verse 19 says, So we have the prophetic Word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. This Word is expressed as a lamp shining in a dark place. The Word of God is pictured as a a lamp, as a light shining in darkness. And I don't know about you, but it draws my attention to Psalm 119, 105 as it says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet, into a light unto my path. We live in dark times, guys, ladies, kids, in which we are called to be a light. That we are to shine the light of Jesus Christ into the lives of people. Scripture says that you are the light of the world, a city. Set on a hill cannot be, be, be hidden. The question is that we need to ask ourselves is do we live like that? When your friends see you, do they see you as a Christian? How do they know you're a Christian? Listen, I'm not talking about just living a good Christian life. Living a good Christian life does not save a soul. Salvation comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. We have to open our mouths and tell people about the true hope of Jesus Christ because we have the greatest of great messages in the world if this Bible is true. And I believe it's true. It's not simply takes place in the confines of this building. This is important. We need to teach the Word of God here. We need to shed light on the people but not only in the confines of this building. 
The gospel needs to be told in the workplace. It needs to be told in the supermarkets and on the sidewalks and in restaurants while driving down the road or basketball games or football games. Wherever there is a viable human to hear the message, that's where we need to be light shining as we tell them of the hope of Jesus Christ. Shining is not simply looking godly. It's speaking the truth and giving people hope. Because people... They depart every day from this world. And they step. They exodus, remember? It's a picture of the exodus. They come out from and they go into. Every single person in this building, unless Jesus Christ comes out, well, if He does come back, we're still going to exodus because we come out from and we're going to to be with the Lord. And it's our responsibility. Our God has given us the gift of being involved in sharing the great message of Jesus Christ as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Christ the Son, listen, He's coming back. The S-O-N will become like the S-U-N and He will rise through those clouds and burst in power. Peter's words should give us aspiration to pay attention to the Word of God and its teachings. Being an example to a dark and fallen world. And if we're walking around like the world, then we're of the world and we cannot be effective. So let our light shine among men that we might lead them to the hope of Jesus Christ. Peter's word gives us aspiration, but lastly, Peter's word gives us confirmation. Peter, Peter's reference to the prophetic message is now going to help us as he explains the nature of how this word is interpreted. The Scriptures themselves claim to be inspired in many, 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 many places. And that is vital as we begin to understand what inspiration is. Now I want you to understand this morning, and I don't have time to go into all of them, but there are many, many, many types of inspiration in our culture. And if we think we got it figured out, we're missing the mark. There are crafty people. And they will say, yeah, we believe in the inspiration of Scripture. You send your kids off to college and you go tell them to find a church and they go to the church and they ask the pastor, do you believe in plenary inspiration? They'll say, yes, sir, we do. But they don't mean what you think they mean. Do you mean what I think you mean? No, we don't. But I don't have time to go into each one. But what I want to do is take time to look at the doctrine of plenary inspiration for just a moment. And Peter talks about it. He says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Now there's a bad train of thought that's going around in our culture and in our time, and I'm sure it was then. There are pastors and teachers that will say, unless you listen to what I say, unless I'm the one that's interpreting the Scriptures for you, you can't understand it. And one that comes to mind is the Jehovah's Witnesses, as they have what you call the Watchtower Society. You know why I know this? Because I used to study with the Jehovah's Witnesses. And so they have what they call the Watchtower Society. And unless you study the New World Translation and you follow it under the teaching of the Watchtower Society, they say you will go into spiritual darkness. And what they did is they just conformed that they have the ability to do everything. That's not what this Scripture is teaching though. 
That's not what it's referring to. God's Word was given to the common people. To people like me, fishermen. To Peter, fishermen. To the disciples, common men, so that we could, in not on our own ability, but under the power of the Holy Spirit, read the Word and be convinced through Scripture and the teachings that what God's Word is true and how we can grow from it. It's not referring to the thought that you can't have an individual Bible study and be affected by it. But you can't make it mean what you want to mean. That's what it's saying. Who was inspired? Is it you or is it me? No, it's the writers. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's why I want to preach verse by verse. I could preach topical messages and after five years I'd be out of topics or we'd have to redo them. But I can teach word by word, verse by verse, and I don't have to take it out of context. I can just preach what's there. If you've got a problem with it, it's your problem, not mine. It's the Word of God and we need to work through it. It's the Word of God. It's inspired. It's God-breathed. We can't make something out of this Word that, that the authors did not intend for us to get out of it. When we study Scripture, we don't say, well, this is what God taught me through the Scripture. No, my objective in studying the Scripture is to try to understand what the author intended the meaning to be. And that's safe. That's good hermeneutics. The Word of God is God-breathed. And Peter, on his own, didn't write the Word of God, but men moved through the Holy Spirit, wrote down these words. You know, we think about that. God spoke to man and He wrote. The very air come out of His body and through His voice box and across His tongue and teeth and it articulated out of His lips the Word of God and these men wrote it down. That's the picture that it's God-breathed. No prophecy of Scripture, verse 21 says, was ever made by an act of a human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Plenary inspiration is the very Word of God. It's complete. It's inspired in all of its part. It's God-breathed in every portion of it. I'll even take it a step further and say we need to have verbal plenary inspiration. Kids, when you go off to college, don't let them tell you they believe in plenary inspiration. Make them tell you they believe in verbal plenary inspiration. Because the reality is, is verbal plenary says we don't believe in every word. We believe in every letter, every jot, and every tittle was inspired by God Himself and is, is true. Listen, this morning this Word that we have is the inspired Word of God. And it is filled with, with years and years and years of teachings and lessons and learning and growing. And it would do us well to pay attention to it. Jesus said, man, thus must not live on bread alone, but every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Matthew 5.18 says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is completed. You see, every word, every letter is God-breathed. 
Jesus believed in verbal plenary inspiration, and I don't care what others say. I'm going to stand on the truth of God's Word just like Jesus does. I'm not going to change the Word of God to make a sin not a sin. I'm not going going to read the Bible as it's not literal and try to make it say something that it doesn't. Listen, when you read Genesis 1-1, there's no way you can read that text in its original context and go that the earth was not built in six literal days. Only when you change Scripture. In, the, in, in plenary inspiration can you make that happen. But when you take away verbal plenary inspiration, you can make it mean whatever you want. You can't read the infallible Word of God and tell me that certain sins are certain sins. Homosexuality. Yes, we love homosexuals. We want them to come in our church. We invite them. I meet with them. I pray with them. I talk with them. I encourage them. But sin is a sin and God says it's a sin and they don't want to come to church. That's okay. Heterosexuals don't come to church because we preach sin. Sin is sin. God says His Word is truth. It's pure. It's unadulterated. But when we go away from verbal plenary inspiration, we not only accept their sin, we put them in the pulpit. Welcome to America. Welcome to a time in which we are encountering false teachers on a regular basis. Peter's words give us confirmation that, that is not by man, but by God that we have this Bible. It's not by natural inspiration, which would say, oh, it's inspired like Shakespeare was inspired to write a book. That's a type of inspiration that's prevalent in our day. Another one is the mystic, mystical inspiration. This would say, yes, we believe in inspiration. We believe the Bible's inspired, much like Bill Campbell was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write his book on marriage. That's not what we mean when we say plenary inspiration. But that's what they say. Some would say it's partial inspiration. Well, we believe it's inspired, but in parts. Because when it comes to science and other things, it's fallible. It's got error. Bull-oney. It's either, listen, it's either all or nothing. It's either fully inspired, totally God-breathed, in all parts, in all words, in all letters, or we got nothing. Go tell somebody that Jesus Christ died on the cross, but there's errors in this Bible. See how effective that is. That's what we're doing across the culture in our churches, in denominations, failing. This is a vital, vital topic to be able to fight against false teachers in our day. We have to understand the Word of God through inspiration. In verse 20, he says, But know first of all that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God and I want to ask you this morning have you put your faith in this Bible it's in infallible truths in its purity the Bible's words are God spoke himself And they are the only thing that will change the heart of men, Christian and non-Christian. 
I can't give you some popular advice or good philosophical reasoning. It won't change your heart. Only the Holy Spirit through the Word of God can change your heart. What will you do with it this morning? Will you allow the people that are changing it to persuade you to fall under false teaching? Or will you stand on the Word of God as if it's truth and follow it to the letter? That's tough. Because the reality is when we read it, we might not like what we read. But if it's true, then there's got to be some growth that goes on in our lives. Let us allow this morning and weeks and years to come in our lives to allow Peter's words to give us affirmation of his testimony of who he really claimed to be let us allow Peter's words to give us aspiration to give us the desire the goal to accomplish shining light among men the gospel truth let us allow Peter's words to give us confirmation that it is a true unadulterated truth of God His very words. Let us pray.